another edition of the Mindset Game Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. I'm a two-time Paralympian, online training and nutrition coach, and owner of James Roberts Fitness. You can find more of my content by going to my website, fitamputee.co.uk. But before we get started with today's show, first off, let me take this opportunity to welcome back the regular listeners. And if this is your first time listening to the show, I hope you enjoy this episode and decide to subscribe to the show. And on today's show, I've got William Pullen. William is a psychotherapist, but also the author of Run For Your Life, Mindful Running For A Happy Life. In the US and in Canada, it's called Running For Mindfulness, Dynamic Running Therapy to Improve Low Mood, Anxiety, Stress and Depression. It's a book on dynamic running therapy that combines mindfulness, running, talk therapy to create understanding and change. As William puts it, it's emotion in motion. So welcome onto the show, William. Thank you, Robert. Nice to be here. So before we delve into today's topic, William, can you divulge to my listeners, what was your reasoning behind it to get into the profession of psych- into psychotherapy? Okay, so, uh, you know, like a lot of therapists, it involves a fair amount of drama. Most of us come into the business via a crisis of our own. And for me, that was a, a, an emotional breakup about uh, 11 years ago. And I sought therapy at the time, and it really worked for me. Um, and that's and I found it fascinating training in it. I'd always been interested in psychology, and so I, I just thought I would I would train to become a therapist. It was so interesting. I could not do it in a way. But obviously, you mentioned that that you got first hand experience of going to therapy. If we kind of sidetrack a little bit and look at why why is there that stigmatization from a male perspective to want to seek help from say, be it other people or even therapy itself yeah i mean most most therapists are women uh, by a, by a massive percentage it's something like 96 percent or something so uh, although that's changing but uh, yeah i don't know i think if we're working in stereotypes broad brushes then i think we're still beholden in this country to stereotypes around masculinity that say that, you know, our job as men is to go out and do the hard work and physical hard work, the brutal stuff, the confrontative stuff and, and women's jobs that are to nurture. Uh, so I think there's that legacy. And so men, men, you know, obviously as a man, it doesn't really fit in into your understanding of yourself that easily if you're on the one hand going to sort of go to the office and, 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 and compete with the other men there and try and be the big guy on campus. And then, you know, at six o'clock go and see a therapist and, and open up about how difficult you're finding it at work because everybody's trying to compete with you and take you down. It's the two can feel uh, incompatible, but particularly with now with a lot of mental health programs at work, you don't even have to leave work. Um, you can you can go and see the HR guy or woman, and 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 take care of this issue right now. So, yeah, I think it's changing. Thank God. But you you touched upon 
the actual blocking off the emotional response now, what harm could a male individual do to themselves by sticking to that stereotype? Well, that's a good question. I mean, you know, we're talking theory here. We're talking stereotypes. Nobody, nobody really knows uh, the cause and effect uh, in anything around mental health is really hard to know genuinely. But as, as I'm sure you know, there's a big stigma around male suicide and male depression. And it's tough for men to, to talk about their feelings and, and their suicidal ideation. So by not talking about it, I suppose you, men put themselves on the path to uh, that much greater probability, uh, whatever it is, four times women that they'll commit suicide. Uh, or And if not that, turn to alcohol, gambling, drugs, prostitution, who knows what else, adultery, uh, overeating. Um, whereas, but here's the interesting thing, right? Because women present much higher rates of depression and anxiety than men. So if women are doing all this talking, how come... How come they're not better off? Uh, it seems like they talk enough not to kill themselves at the same rate men do, but not enough to, or, or society keeps on triggering anxiety for them. I don't know what it is. I, I, I'm not a woman. I'm not sure anybody understands why it is. And as you know, anxiety rates have gone through the roof in the last few years. So, But it's a great question. What's, what's your take on it? What do you think? I think, like you say, people want to put across that facade that they're the strong individual, um, this, probably that male bravado. You don't want to be seen, so to speak, as a well, a lesser man, a weaker individual. So mm. I think you, you do kind of put up that wall. Well, this is who I am to the outside world. You may show a, a different side to yourself, be it with family I, I've, that's probably generalization to me more specifically and i think i think and i had somebody locally say to me you i think i found in the summer months with school not being in i found yeah. that, i found that i was kind of putting myself in isolation and when i actually talked to somebody or within the community about that he was quite surprised by me actually divulging that information because I don't come across as an individual which would actually have that problem at times and I was like well I, I don't purposely isolate myself but I guess because be it the nature of my business in the summer months and obviously online training and be it we are going as a society to more people working at home you kind of nat naturally probably instinctively do it and you don't mean to so you are actually blocking yourself off from the outside world so there'll be times where you don't speak to individuals well you normally associate that with the elderly population but I think it's going lower lower down the tier because we are becoming more freelance as a society so we are actually closing ourselves off and it will be it might be a case of as we're talking on on Skype or whatever social media outlet that is that will be your only interaction with a 
we'll say quote unquote a normal human being yeah i mean and with your background as as a professional athlete that must you know you you must have to push yourself so hard to do that it must be hard to uh experience uh your own vulnerability when you're pushing yourself so hard whether it be emotional vulnerability or physical vulnerability it must be really tough um well to answer your question william i don't i don't think so there's been times where i've been at breaking point be it from a physical standpoint and emotion has come through be it or i'll use the example in volleyball which was about seven years ago i wasn't getting a lot of playing time but I was putting in the hours in training. Gosh, I think that, that particular week leading into competition, I think I trained like 30 hours. So I was to the point of exhaustion. And I guess because of the fatigue, I just broke down. Okay, it was with a family member. I burst into tears. So I, I think I do let my emotion come out from time to time. Obviously, people don't see it. Um, that kind of cut to long story short. The coach, the head coach, actually found out about it. How I don't know. I'm assuming somebody overheard that conversation I had with my mother, uh, and it went back to the coach. So he he apologized to my mother because um, his girlfriend at the time was staying at the same hotel, and he bumped into her and he apologized. Well, James is putting in the workload. He just needs to work on it and become more consistent. So it was like, well, it's good feedback to me. But it'd be nice if you told me that face to face, as opposed to me hitting rock bottom, so to speak, and it coming out that way. But would it? I would it have strengthened the the relationship between myself and the coach? I would say a little bit because he could see me willing to put in the sacrifice to get the reward. So I was in it for the long road, and it's like, well, okay. I, I, I probably didn't work as hard as that because it's like, well, I'm going to work to so far, but I would like that everybody on the team is doing the same first year. So mm. I think with me, I went back to university as well. So it's like, well, I was only able to train, I think it was Monday, Thursday, and then I had to go to uni. So that was kind of my escape, so to speak, to get out of the, the sports bubble and actually have a, another side to me, and mm. uh, I think that worked quite well in the in the run up to um, the London Games. And there's probably a few more occasions that that's arisen, but I think I probably f- align myself outside of that stereotype to some degree. That I am a little bit more emotional with my feelings. It probably helped. Well, I won't say help. It probably coincides with. I was brought up in a single parent household, whereas a lot of it would be my mother, my aunt, my grandmother. So I'm around the the female psyche maybe a little bit more, whereas maybe mm. I think maybe I was maybe in tune more with my emotions growing up because it was normal. I think as I've got older, I've maybe started to align myself more with what was perceived as the, the males. Uh, stigma, not stigma, but the male. Uh, how would you interpret how they must behave because mm. of sport? I, I, I must be strong. I must put a fr- front out 
to be not perceived as weak and maybe I've drifted as I've got older to the other side so when I struggle with whatever it be illness and things I kind of go into a little dip and feel sorry for myself and like you said the the anxiety is at an all-time high I start going into that vicious cycle of feeling sorry for me feeling anxious making myself actually worse because I'm inside my head Mm. and and it's a vicious spiral whereas if I actually spoke about actually how I felt be it close friends uh, I would say I'm probably fairly close to my family so I would, I would like to think that I could if I had a problem of that nature I would be able to divulge it I've never had any we talked about suicide at the very beginning I've never had those kind of thoughts I've just been maybe depressed at times because things haven't been going my way but I think the podcast has been a good resource for me at times because it has been an outlet for me to pose questions to the guest and a lot of the times the questions are directly with maybe what I'm struggling with at that particular time Brilliant, yeah Yes uh, well, that's why I love podcasts. You know, they're very organic, and they tend to be end up in in personal territory sooner or later, one way or another. Well, that one I alluded to when I was feeling a little bit depressed. I'm trying to think when this would have been. It'd been, la- well, not last year. I think it'd been the year before, and I wasn't. This is now since I've retired and doing basketball. I wasn't getting a lot of playing time but I was blaming other people for those misfortunes and kind of not looking at well not black and white but not looking internally to me well what could I do better and then speaking to the sports psychologist and he's saying well do this does this person this this individual do this 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 I could aim it at myself because it was my question and it was me trying to get the answer I was like well not really I'm not doing A, B, C so me blaming D is kind of being a bit I'm kind of using a scapegoat to make me feel better to kind of pass the buck pass the blame whereas I can control A, B, C I can't control D Because I'm not doing everything in my power, be it to train more, uh, to make myself better. And then since, I I don't think I've listened to it back, but I took the information on board and and I looked to implement it. And then I got more playing time last season and I was a lot happier. I was in a better place. So when I see myself possibly spiraling down again... Yeah. I can kind of look at, well, if you're doing ABC, you're not getting playing time. Well, if the other person's better than you, it's nothing I can, well, I can get better, but I have to, I have to do what's best for the team. So, and take, and take uh, a backward step and be a little bit more supportive from that, so that side of things. So, I think, like we touched upon with the podcast, I think it's a good, re- it's a good resource to, okay, some people might resonate with the particular episode, but then you might get, something out of it by listening by well not say off chance but you might get something that you didn't expect 
Yeah, no, definitely. Now coming on to now to coming back onto the topic we were going to discuss now, William. What was the reasoning behind? Obviously, for the British listeners, uh, your book is called "Run for Your Life: Mindful Running for a Happy Life." What was kind of the the basis and the underlying reasoning behind wanting to write, write that book in the first instance? Okay, so around the same time I mentioned earlier on, this time when I was, you know, in a personal crisis and training and, and, and in personal therapy, I also took up running because I knew that running would get me out of the house that I was hiding out in. I knew the fresh air would be good for me. I knew the exercise would be good for me. So it ticked a lot of boxes. Uh, and I rang up a friend and together we started to train. Uh, I mean, neither of us were fit to begin with. We were poker buddies. And um, and so, yeah, we, we definitely struggled. You know, I was a heavy smoker, drinker, other things. And But, you know, if you start off 50 meters of a day and add on an extra 10 or 20, uh, it builds up. It's very doable. You just need to find your incremental uh, zone that you can do. Um, and what I noticed was how powerful running was. It was helping me in so many ways that I had this idea to combine running with psychotherapy. And so during my training, which lasted about six years, I built up this kind of approach which I named dynamic running therapy it's been quite successful and I've written a book about it now um, and so that that's the journey I'm a big sort of promoter of movement uh, for mental health whether it be for, for me what I do whether it's for myself or with my clients I, I run uh, or walk but um, equally you know whatever whatever makes you get out and get the blood moving, I think is generally good for you. I think you'd agree with that as an athlete. Well, well, def- definitely that's what I then t- touch upon. We, t- we, t- we touch upon this briefly off air uh, with my health conditions at the present moment. Uh, and I I'll, and I'll, don't mind divulging with the listeners as well. I'm struggling with back problems and hip problems at the moment, but obviously it's, it's very, uh, it's not great as a trainer to, to say that, but, I think, well, I know full well it is my own fault because I've been become more sedentary. I'm in front of a computer for long periods of the day, and I've caused that tightness. So I've got to either go one, the fork in the road really, is I either accept it and get worse, which I don't particularly want to do, or I need to get more active. And then just before this call, I've been out with uh, my mother, for, for a walk a lot I, I'm fortunate to live on the North Wales coast so I've got that uh, sea air as well so I think there's a I've probably got like you said the best of both worlds I've got more get the, got up and about but then I've also got the fresh air as well yeah I mean you know we we have to invest uh, time uh, in our uh, physical health because you know, my work is all about linking those two, the, the physical health with the mental health. The, the link is so clear uh, that for me, I know that 
if I spend, you know, whatever amount of time I force myself to do exercise for, no matter what I have to give up, it's the best investment I'm doing because it's going to keep, it's going to save me money in terms of healthcare costs. Um, it's going to be good for my mental health and it's going to be good for my, my physical health. So I'm going to feel good inside my body. My body's going to do what I, what I want it to do. And on those grounds, you know, I, I really try to prioritize. And, you know, my, my social life takes a big hit. I spend a lot of time training myself, trying to keep fit for my clients, uh, but also for myself. And, um, yeah, it, it can be quite isolating. But, uh, but I know that, I know that it's, a, it's, a, it's a good deal. It's a much better deal than not doing it because if I don't do it, then both my physical and mental health very quickly take a dive in the wrong direction. And, um, yeah, I don't, I don't like that. And in your opinion, William, why do you think the fitness, it might be a difficult question for you to answer, why do you think it's taken upon till about quite recently that the fitness industry has kind of tagged along and kind of looked at the importance of mental health with it looking on site, being parallel to be it people's fitness goals, but also their health goals. What, why do you think that is? Oh, I think it's just a, it's a, just part of a culture of, of concern around mental health. You're seeing the same thing happening in, in so many different areas, all, all, all sorts of different kinds of activities and workplaces. And so I think exercise is just one more of those. There have been some examples, of course, of athletes that have had mental health issues. Uh, that, and because they're public figures, that helps bring uh, bring the story into the press. I think that that's part of it. I also think it it looks good. You know, it's uh, it looks good for for a football team, say, to have a mental health professional working with the team. You know, it makes them appear responsible and caring. And that's good for everybody. So <clears throat> I think that's a big part too. And then, of course, there's the piece that you say you don't struggle with too much, which is that, you know, a lot of uh, people at, at the very high end, and you, you were at the very high end of competition, um, experience a lot of, a lot of drama around, around needing to compete, around needing to be the best they can be. And quite often they end up in that kind of black and white thinking, I'm either the best or I'm not good enough. And then they end up going down that road. And so for some people, I think for many people in sport, sport can be very, very difficult. And, and then when you get out of, you know, get dropped by a team, suddenly you're not in, in, uh, in an important team or you get sidelined, you know, and all your dreams are gone or you get one injury and your entire future's gone. I mean, it's hell, right? But then to answer to to kind of go a little bit further to your point, William, I think, oh, and this is talking to my family now since I've retired, I probably put across that image, but I would talk to them, gosh, a bit weekly, probably I'll say we'll say weekly chats over the phone. So I would probably put my frustrations over the phone. So I think they had to deal with a lot of mental uh, stresses. And you're thinking, oh, looking back, 
gosh, what would I, what have I actually put them through? That they, they've actually been on that journey as well, and there's nothing they can do about it. So you think, right. oh, I should be. Well, they're gonna, they're always gonna be family, so they're not, they're not gonna be wanting me to thank them. But you're thinking, it is very, very self-centered of me to kind of put over those um, bit prejudice. Uh, not selection, um, not falling out with the coach or, or what, etc. You're thinking, well, I can control all of these things. They can't control any. They can't. They can't change any of that for me. However, they might wish to. Whereas you think of problems with any other child, be it I don't know problems at school. Well, the parent can do something about that. Uh, elite level sport. The, the the federation the coach don't give a don't care what the family member that is probably if if that actually actually came to a head and they had a disagreement over something I would say maybe somebody maybe in their teens well that's going to cause problems for the athlete because it's like well you're a problem problem parent I'm going to make like make life hell for for your son or daughter so so it's like well it's I think now, and I think that's only just come to my to, to my mind tonight when we were speaking. Mm. I never actually thought about those implications. I know they've talked about it, but I've kind of brushed it under the carpet or brushed it aside. It's like, well, I apologize, but but then thinking about it, you're probably in even more stress than I am. And I've made it ten times worse because I've told you, well, something that's annoyed me, stressed me out, and you can't do anything about it. Hmm. Well, <laughs> if I'm understanding what you're talking about, it seems like you're saying, well, there's no point in sharing my work problems with my loved ones because they can't do anything about it. Is that right? I mean, that sort of runs in the face, if I may say, <laughs> of everything that I do. Because, you know, what I do, we're known as the listening profession. And uh, our job is just to listen to people, you know. And so your loved ones may not be able to ring up uh, the chairman of, of, of the English Olympic Committee or whatever it's called and change your course for you. Um, but they can most definitely listen to you and take time and show interest and care for you by sitting there and listening with you. So I do think there's very much a point in talking to them, but perhaps that's not what you meant. I don't know. No, it's, it is entirely. That's what my point I was trying to get across. I think maybe I try and use it, well, I'll say back then, as an outlet to get a whatever be stress, anxiety, frustration mm. off my chest. And then move on. Whereas they, I think maybe because now I'm older, I'll listen back and say, "Okay, you actually are right." I could see you were along the journey. You were actually more stressed at times than I am, because I've forgotten about it. I've got that whatever problem it may be off my chest, and I've moved mm. on. Moved on. Whereas you may have stuck with it for a bit longer and say well I want to have hung up the phone you might be well possibly losing sleep over it because it's like well you're the other side of the country 
Um, I think earlier on in my career, my mother was still out in Belgium for, in NATO. So it's like, well, there's nothing. She's, she's, gosh, two, three, oh, I can't think, about probably 400 miles away, so she can't do anything. So it's no. like, well, I think as a very young athlete, I was very self-centered. I very inward thinking. I thought about myself. I didn't think of the implications, what it had on the others around me, even to the extent of my family. So I think, I think as I got older and took a, I think my mother, mother more so because she was around me for a lot longer of the, of the career from even when I was starting out, oh gosh, 10, 11 years old, she's gone through the course and can kind of say, well, that's my personality. I like my space. Whereas my aunt and uncle were very much not like that. They wanted to speak to you thinking, well, I'm not in the right frame of mind here to speak to you because I'm very yeah. frustrated would be, uh, the example I'm going to use is the World Championships, gosh, back in 2006. I was not happy with the performance. I don't want to speak to the family. Give me, give me some time to wind down and uh, cool off yeah. and then I'll come speak to you. But I took on board what my mother said to me. Well, they're not as, so to speak, understanding of me that you are like that you yeah. need to take on board. Well, that's how they are, and that's and I probably merged the two after that. And I think if I use the example, two years later, I actually surprised my mother after uh, the final the the, the the Paralympics, and I was very much like that. She, I was very humble. I did everything I could. Mm. The result didn't go my way. It was like I was a totally different person. Well, I think that's the that's the value of of discussing things with people and, and and disclosure and revealing who you are and what's happening because otherwise we do an awful lot of us assuming and you know in, in the example you've just given where you're assuming that your uncle and aunt know that you know you're somebody who needs to just digest what's happened for a while and you assume that they know that about you. And I think a lot of my work is about unpacking assumptions. So many, particularly in, in marriages, people end up building so many assumptions and, uh, about the other person. And, and then they start acting in a certain way according to the assumptions that they've made, at which point that other person is effectively doing the very thing that you think they're doing because you're reacting in the way that you would if they were doing it. So you believe that, let's say for the sake of, uh, of the conversation, you believe that they're untrustworthy uh, or you believe that they're self-centered or whatever it may be, appearance, and, and, and you don't know that, well, actually, there's this other explanation for why they're not, why they're not giving you what you want and you can't see it, but you treat them that way and soon they end up sort of acting that way anyway and then they treat you back in another way because if you're treating them like that and and so it spirals and that can go on for years you know people can just in marriages they can just what you mean for 10 years i i thought for 10 years you thought i wasn't worth talking to about your work problems i i you know and then the husband goes, no, 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 you know, you, you were a banker uh, when you retired to look after our kids. I respect your opinion so much. The only reason I don't ask for it is because I think you've got 
enough on your plate as it is. And then she's like, what? All these years I thought it's because you thought I was stupid. That's why I've been having an affair with the man next door. <laughs> well, let's hope it's not that. But do you see my point? Mm -hmm. But out of interest, William, mm. why? How, what are kind of the, the mental triggers to get us into those assumptions to start with? Oh, well, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're sense memories. They're things deep in, in, in their scars within you, places where the things that make you who you are, the, 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 the words that have been said to you, the, and the things that weren't said to you, and the assumptions you had to make as a child. Why doesn't Daddy want to talk to me you know, when he gets back from work? And as a kid, you make a lot of assumptions. Worse than that. As a kid, you're forced in, into making horrible deals around those assumptions because even if your dad is a terrible person, uh, when he gets home, you, as a kid, you don't want to look at your dad and say, oh, well, he's a terrible person because he's all you've got. So you tell yourself, well, he's kind of a terrible person, but mostly he's a good person. And so your idea of what's good and bad in a person starts to sort of smudge right from an early age. But, yeah, I mean, they're all projections, right? And that, that's why we've got to always check our projections. But is there anything you could actually, um, trying to think of the word, put in place later on in life that you could change that or would that alter your person? Would, would that actually change your personality and, and what actually makes you the person you are? Well, in, in terms of your own assumptions, yeah, you could, you, could, you could read a lot. You could write about it. You could spend time meditating on it. You could go into therapy. And if there are some assumptions you don't like, some traits in yourself, let's say you're untrustworthy and you know it and it causes problems with your friends or your work colleagues or your, your partner, that's something you can work with. Your assumption is that people aren't worth your trust or that people will ultimately betray you. That's a, that's a large assumption, you know. And if you go into a relationship assuming that, you're going, to, you're going to be in a difficult place. So there are plenty of opportunities to check it out, either by sharing it with your partner and say, listen, I, am, I have to tell you I have a real problem trusting people and can you help me with it? You read a book on it, or you can go into therapy for it. And my final question for you before we wrap up the episode, William. Yeah. If you had to summarize what we've been speaking about today into one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? Hmm. I think it's about sharing. Um, I've just done a, a, a TEDx talk actually in Manchester called Movement is Medicine. And in it, I talk about something I call empathy runs, which are or empathy walks, which are shared walks to people. One does all the talking, one does all the listening, and then you swap roles. Um, it's a little, it's well, I was going to say it's a little bit more than that. It's, it barely is any more than that. The instructions are don't interrupt, uh, don't try to save. Don't try to interpret. Don't do anything. Just listen to somebody for 10 minutes. And then you swap roles. And it's amazing how powerful they are. My thing I want to tell people is to talk, to share, to open up, to be patient, particularly to try and find somebody who will listen to you without interrupting you. Because in this world that we live in now, 
we're not very good at formulating uh, our feelings anymore because we don't tend to talk about them uh, in in ways that are conducive to, to to really being understood. And so, if you can really just ask somebody not to talk <laughs> for ten minutes, and a good way to do that is to go for a walk or run. Um, because then they've got something to distract them. It's amazing how much will come out of you. And it's amazing how, if that's a 10-minute process, it's amazing how quite often, in my experience, people, are they don't even get to what they really want to say until sort of minute seven or eight. And they're like, thank God I did this because I've been wanting to say this for five years, but I've never known how to get to it. I've always been sort of interrupted or sidetracked, you know. So talk, find a, find a way to talk. That's that's my message to people. So once again, William, thanks again for coming on the Mindset Game podcast. Oh, my pleasure. And before I forget, I would really appreciate it if you would be so kind as to leave a short review as it helps to get the podcast more notoriety and it will be more visible in future to others and thus helping more people, which my guests and I are all about. Once again, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time for another episode of the Mindset Game Podcast.